to see the wonders that are found in your word this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to encourage you to open your Bibles to the book of Romans as we continue our study there. And this morning, we come to Romans chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 21 through 26. You don't want to say it like that. Turn to Romans 3, 21, 26. All these numbers and everything, it doesn't sound very, very exciting. But, you know, one commentator on this passage says, this is the most important paragraph ever written in history. I just want you to let that sink in for a minute. This one paragraph that we're going to read, commentators have said, this is the most important paragraph ever written. So, you know, we should probably pay good attention. Would you please stand as we honor the reading of this word? Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time, so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is God's Word. Would you please have a seat? Well, Years ago, when my daughter was around eight or so, and we would go up to the lake, she was not a fan of the water. It was too cold. There was too many unknown things swimming around in there that you couldn't see. And yet, she was willing to go along with a big, the big family when we decided to hike from the little lake to the big lake, big lake being Lake Michigan, the little lake that has a stream that feeds into it. Uh, so someone dropped us off at a, about halfway through because the, the stream that flows from one lake to the other is at some places it's narrow, some places it's very shallow, some places it's deeper. Some places have kind of the false bottom where you sink about a foot through the silt before you hit anything solid. Some of it is, has, has lots of seaweed, there's downed branches that have fallen across in some areas, there's tree branches that hang over in other areas. So it has a lot of variety in the hike, and we were going to hike down this outlet to the big lake. We thought that would be a great idea. So as we, were, as we marched into the water, we quickly realized that maybe this wasn't such a great idea because all these obstacles, while they might have been fun and fine in a canoe, when you're walking, they're not quite so much. For as you walk under the branches, you run through spider webs, and you have to look out for snakes. And you don't see the branches that are going across underwater that you can trip on. And you don't know when you hit one of those false bottoms. And so, we're, you know, it's, it's getting a little murky as we go through the water. And my poor daughter, who already doesn't like the water, someone thought it would be funny to suggest some things that might be in the water. So they told her, started telling her about leeches. And all of a sudden, every, you know, dark spot, everything became a leech. And she would scream, and we started to call her our leech detector. And she still to this day has that nickname, leech detector. Don't call her that when she comes back. I did get permission to share this story, by the way, because she's not here to defend herself. 
Uh, so our leech detector was the one who sounded the warning that, that this was a bad idea to march through this. And while it was funny at first to hear her scream, we soon were all joining her and thinking, this was a bad idea. This, was, this is not fun anymore. The problem was you can't get out because the vegetation along the side is so thick and heavy. There's no place to get out. Plus, we're barefoot, and we can't, you know, we can't try to hike through all of that. So when we come around the final bend and we see it open up, the vegetation gives way to the beach, and we can see Lake Michigan in the distance. It was like, you know, the, the angels singing their choir, hallelujah. You know, we're out of the weeds, and we're into the sunshine. That's where we are in Romans this morning. We have been through the weeds and the murk and the leeches and the branches and the snakes and the spiders in the last two chapters. There are things that you really don't ever want to have to face and go through. As Paul has been pounding this idea that guess what? You are awful. <laughs> you are a sinner. You have fallen short of God's glory, that you have no claim whatsoever upon God. It's as though He's taken us to the very bottom of the pit, where it is pitch black, and there is no hope, and you can't get out. And while in that spot, He offers these words, but now, but now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. So he's initially telling us this, in essence, is what the good news is all about. Maybe they just seemed like words before, before I took you down into the pit and showed you your true condition. Maybe they didn't seem like much, but now I want you to know they are everything. And if this isn't true, then we really are a people that should rightly be in a state of utter despair. But we are not. And it's not because we don't know of our condition, it's because God has revealed something that gets us out, something that is going to shine the light in the dark place, something that is going to pull us in our dead situation out of the grave and into the light and into life. And that's what this passage, this paragraph is talking about. In essence, what he's saying The good news is this, that righteousness of God comes through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. That's the nutshell of it. The righteousness of God comes through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And if, what I want to do is just ask some simple questions because that's kind of the nature of Paul's argument as he anticipates questions and he answers them. So we might ask first, well, how does it come? How does it come? And the simple answer is, it comes as a gift. It comes as a gift. You see this very straightforward in verse 24, that uh, you are justified by His grace as a gift. You are justified by His grace as a gift. As a gift. Have you ever found it hard to receive gifts? Sometimes it can be a little bit hard to receive gifts. You feel like you're being put under obligation. You feel like you have to give something in return. But a gift, by definition, is not something that is meant to be returned. It's not meant something that's meant to be paid back. Otherwise, it's no longer a gift. 
It's hard sometimes for us to let a gift just be a gift and just be grateful and appreciate it. That's what God is doing. He's saying this greatest thing in all the universe, my righteousness, I'm giving you as a gift. I am giving you as a gift. Now, that makes all the more sense when we remember where we were, Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now, the essence of what that is saying is, look, you are in a situation where you have absolutely no righteousness of your own. You are devoid of it. You are empty of it. So, if you are going to be justified, which he's talking about here, this justification, if you're going to be justified, it has to be it must be, it can only be as a gift, as a gift. Now, why did he have to say this? I mean, he's saying this to a variety of groups of people. And first of all, I want you to think about the church in the Roman time was made up of you know, prominently Jews, but also Gentiles as well. And he's writing to a church that has a mixture of both in there. And he does have to explain to them, uh, to the Jewish person, who, who this idea of coming as a gift out of the blue is kind of a new idea. For them. They felt like God owed them something because He had given them all these promises and privileges in the past. You know, He had given them the law. He had revealed Himself to them in the form of the, the presence of His in the tabernacle. He had given them the sacrificial system. He had given them a revelation of Himself in the past. And it, it, it's very easy to think that because He has done all this, because He has privileged us in su- such a way and set us apart from all these other nations in the world, Therefore, we must be somehow better and superior to these other people. So this idea that you're giving me a gift is a little bit offensive. Wait a minute. I don't need a gift in the same way that these other people need a gift. It's kind of like the, the parable of the, the prodigal son that we were talking about last night. You know, one son goes off and he squanders all of his father's inheritance. He does everything wrong. And the other son seems to do everything right. And when God extends a gift of welcome back to the younger brother who's failed in every way, the older brother is angry. Because he doesn't want that reward to be a result of being a gift. He wants to have it to be a reward of somehow living in a way that has set him apart and set him above other people. So we don't like this idea of a gift. And even if you're not Jewish, you know, the, still the idea, you look around in the world, as we just talked about how bad things really are, and you look around in the world and you can certainly see a lot of bad things happening. I mean, if you open up any newspaper or you watch the news, you're going to hear about people doing terrible things. And it is easy to compare ourselves continually with all these bad things that people are doing. Oh, I don't drive through crowds and mow people over. Oh, I don't kill babies. Oh, I don't do this or I don't do that. And as a result, we want to think of ourselves as not as bad as these other people. And therefore, because we're not as bad as these other people, somehow we have something in and of ourselves that is worthy of God's attention and reward. That even if He doesn't owe us everything, He owes us something because we could be a lot worse. And the whole principle Paul is saying here is, look, I just took you through the last two chapters to help you understand that God owes you nothing. 
by way of what you have, how you have lived. For you have all equally sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now, that doesn't mean you've done all the same sins. That's not the equal I mean. But I mean there is all of you, every single one of you stands under condemnation of God. And that's where you are. There is no in-between. You are all guilty. And therefore, if I'm going to justify you, it has to be as a gift. It must be as a gift. And of course, that's good news. It just may be a little bit hard to swallow for those of us who still feel some sense of self-worth, of self-righteousness. I mean, the whole point of the last few chapters was to try to gently take your fingers off of that grip of this self-righteousness that you were trying to hold on to. And so, if he has succeeded, then this indeed is good news. Justification is a gift. So, what's the next question? Well, what does it mean to be justified? What is justification? Now, justification is is a legal term a term that you know, kind of belongs in the courtroom, forensic as they might say. It's a status before the law, as it were. And I know we don't often use that word in our regular vocabulary unless we're trying to defend something that we've done that people don't like. And then we want to justify ourselves, right? Because we have this innate sense that we don't want to be held guilty. We don't want to be, you're accusing me of hurting your feelings or doing something bad that hurt your feelings, but I don't want to be guilty. I want to somehow find some reason to justify my actions that I took that hurt your feelings so bad. You ever heard those apologies? I'm sorry that you feel so hurt. It must have been somehow your fault because you heard it wrong. We justify ourselves by, by pointing to, well, we didn't mean it that way. Our intentions weren't bad. Or we might say, well, the only reason that happened is because the circumstances that were surrounding it were so bad, I didn't have any other choice. So we point to intentions, we point to circumstances, but the whole idea is that we are trying to justify ourselves before this person who's accusing us of committing some wrongdoing. That's, the, that's what justify means. Justified means I am... I am not guilty in the eyes of right and wrong, in the eyes of the law. So when we hear about the justification that God gives us is a gift, what he's talking about is some legal standing that we have in the eyes of the law. And somehow, somehow, God is justifying us despite the fact that we're all guilty before Him. Somehow, God is giving us a standing before the law that we in ourselves have not merited or deserved. Verses 21 and 22 help us to see some of this. Now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So he's saying the righteousness of God has been manifested in Jesus Christ. And that righteousness is for all who through faith, who believe through faith in Jesus Christ. So it's it's a righteousness that has been revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, you know, Martin Luther, among others, would call this the great exchange, that what he's doing is he's 
He's justifying you on the basis not of your righteousness, but on the righteousness that He has revealed before the world in the life of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was one who never broke the law, who lived the sinless life. And what Paul is saying is that's the revelation of righteousness by which I am going to justify you in the eyes of the law. That is a remarkable statement. That is a remarkable thing that God is doing. And how does it come? Well, it's a gift. It is a gift I'm giving to you, His righteousness. I'm crediting to your standing so that when you stand before the judge, all he can say is not guilty because you are not guilty because Jesus Christ lived a sinless life. And his righteousness is the basis upon which you are measured. That is, again, this is the most astounding thing that we can ever comprehend in all of history that this can happen. Now, how does he do it? Paul explains how in verse 24 and 25, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Now, we've got some, we got some words we need to unpack a little bit here because there's two important concepts to understand about how this works. One, he talks about redemption. He says it happens through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now, what does it mean to be redeemed? I mean, we do use that word occasionally in our vocabulary. To redeem is to buy something back. If you, for example, need money and so you go to a pawn shop or a loan shark and, and you have some, something that's worth something, you can give it to him and he'll hold on to it as collateral and give you money that it's worth that you can go and spend on other things with the idea that when you have the money to repay him, you'll repay him and then you'll redeem that thing of value that you left with him. So until you're able to cover that cost, it's lost to you. It's not yours until you buy it back, till you redeem it. And when he's talking about that somehow you are being justified through a redemption that is in Christ Jesus, there's something about the fact that you have been lost in terms of relationship with God, and the only way to get you back is to buy you back, is to redeem you. And of course, if we think about how man was initially created as image bearers of God and walked and talked freely in the garden, the Garden of Eden, representing the the localized presence of the intimate presence of God among His people. And as as they broke God's one prohibition to take of the fruit, the forbidden fruit, the result was that God cast them out of the garden. The idea is that they are no longer, they have been lost to the intimate presence of God. It's been lost. And the only way back in to that presence is through redemption, is to be bought back. And the redemption price that Paul is explaining here is the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ is the redemption price to buy you back into the family of God. And the only way, of course, you can stand in the presence of God is if you are right in the eyes of the law, which is why you had to be justified. I mean, that was established, again, as he talks about the Old Testament, you know, the, the, the prophets and the law pointing to it as we think about the Old Testament and the time in which God brought the, the people enslaved in Egypt out 
to the mountain where his presence was, and he said, I'm setting you apart, but the only way that you can be set apart in being in my presence is if you're holy. Now, they never could get a full glimpse of, of the Lord in their presence. It was always symbolically represented by the tabernacle or by the Holy of Holies, by the Ark of the Covenant, by the priests who, who were standing uh, representing, or the prophets who were representing God before them. God's presence was there. It was communicated to them. It was symbolically present, but it wasn't really present because they hadn't been justified yet. It was depicted that they were holy and set apart, and it was in the depiction that allowed them to stand uh, uh, in the presence of God was the fact that they brought blood of animals before the Lord, a sacrifice to show, yes, this is what my sin deserves to have a life extinguished, a death, that is. And as that blood covers over, covers over the people, the people are brought in and symbolically justified in the eyes of God, in the eyes of the law, and therefore they can be in God's presence. Of course, they because that mediated presence was always mediated, it wasn't present, it wasn't until Jesus Christ actually came that the actual redemption price was paid. It's why there's no longer any sacrificial animal sacrifice before the temple, because it's already been paid. There's nothing left to pay. You were redeemed, you were bought back into God's family by the blood of Jesus Christ. The other idea, how did that work? The next part unpacks it for us, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood. As a propitiation by His blood. The, the word propitiation is an, is an interesting word, and I know commentators have bounced back and forth of trying to, to, to say, well, a better word would be expiation rather than propitiation. Propitiation carries the idea of curing favor with one where it's been lost. And there are people who don't like the idea of propitiation to think, well, you know, we don't have to somehow placate and, you know, this, this angry God with some sacrifice. That sounds very pagan. But when you think about what has Paul been describing, the wrath of God, God is justly angry. The wrath of God is being revealed. The anger of God is being revealed against wickedness. And that's not, that's not, a, that's not a, a wrongly placed emotion. That's a rightly uh, aimed anger. And that wrath does have to be somehow measured and meted out. And the only way to do it is through the blood of one who is standing to receive the punishment that is due. There is no way to remove the punishment or the wrath unless the punishment or wrath is actually meted out. So the idea that, that Jesus' blood is a propitiation it's the means by which you are brought back into the favor of God, into the favor of God. And that's important on a couple of levels, because when we think about salvation or justification as something that, well, it takes away the guilt that we have, but it doesn't necessarily bring us into the favor of God. And this is saying it's doing both. You've both been justified in the, eyes of the God, in the eyes of God, your guilt has been taken away, but not only that, God now looks upon you with favor, with favor, because His wrath has been poured out. It's empty. It's gone. The propitiation through His blood, so that we might know not only that we are free of debt, 
but we are invited to know all the wonders of having a right relationship with God. So why did God do it this way? Why did He do it this way? And that's the answer He's giving us next in verses 25 and 26. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So why did He, so why did he do it this way? He did it simply to show God's righteousness. Now, he does that, he talks about in two different ways. He does it by showing his righteousness by being the one who is just, and he shows his righteousness by being the one who is also the justifier. So, he's just and he's the justifier, two very fascinating terms to think about. Why did God do it this way? Now, why would this be a problem? Why was there some confusion about God and His justice prior to this, to this happening? And he's giving some reasons why, but he says, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Now, that's problematic for people. When they see wickedness going on and nothing being done about it, well, that creates a problem in a person's mind. I'll give a good example of, uh, Alan, if I can use it, something you brought up last night, our Theology Wine Cigar Night, you talked about uh, one person had given a, a reason why he couldn't ever believe God is because He would allow the Holocaust to happen. I can't believe in a God who would allow such an atrocity of the Holocaust to happen. And that's such a fascinating thing because He's essentially having the same problem here. I can't accept a God who's not, on the one hand, just to deal with these atrocities because it seems like no one's getting punished as a result of that happening. Or He allowed it to happen in the first place. And we can deal with both of those. Why did He allow that to happen in the first place? And, And if we were being a good student of Romans, we realize that's not the right question. The right question is, why doesn't this happen to everybody? That's the better question. It's not that, that the people who died in the Holocaust didn't deserve it. It's the fact that all the rest of us do too. But at the same time, we don't always see the, the payback, the justice come for such atrocities as that. And that creates a problem for people. When they don't see God acting justly because people seem to be getting away with their wickedness, that's, that's trouble. And Paul is explaining that. This is why, this is why that happens. God has passed over former sins in order to get to this place in history. It wasn't that He was allowing those sins to go unpunished. That's not the point at all. The point that was He was going to punish those sins in the person of Jesus Christ, and He was revealed at a very specific point in history. So there's a sense in which God Himself is being vindicated as a just God by revealing His wrath being poured out against His Son, Jesus Christ. He's defending this idea that God isn't a just God. Wickedness prevails. Well, no, it's not. And I want you to show this is what judgment looks like because He poured it out upon Jesus Christ. So He is the one who is demonstrating that, yes, He is, in fact, a just God. But then He talks about His righteousness is also revealing that He is the justifier. The justifier. Now, that phrase, so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ, seems to be a contradiction. It's not the first one either that we found in Scripture. It's reminiscent of, of, 
of something that happened in the Old Testament when Moses had brought the people out of Egypt and he wanted God to reveal himself to him. So God brings him to the cleft on a rock and hides his face and he passes by and he utters his name in, in Exodus chapter 34, verse 6 and 7. And this is what he says when he utters his name. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. And, and in the Old Testament, all they could do was live with that tension. How can you, on the one hand, clear, not clear the guilty, and on the other hand, forgive transgression and sin? If you're forgiving transgression and sin, then it certainly seems like you are clearing the guilty. You see, it's this contradiction that stands, this tension that existed for centuries. It's, it's this puzzle that has to be unpacked, and the, the mystery that solves the puzzle is the person of Jesus Christ. Because in Jesus Christ, all the promises that God had given to forgive their iniquity and sin are able to come to them, to that forgiveness of sin, without clearing the guilty, because the guilt was put on the shoulders of Jesus Christ. And that's depicted again in the prophets in the time of the Old Testament with, the, with the, what happened with the Day of Atonement and the scapegoats. There were two goats. One time a year, there was a, it was called the Day of Atonement. And the high priest was to bring two goats before the Lord. And the one goat was to be sacrificed to show this is what the sin of the people deserve as he's transferring their guilt upon these goats. And the other goat upon which they've confessed the sin of the people, is being led out into the wilderness, away from the people. There is this depiction that the guilt is being transferred from the people to these goats, one which has to have its, its blood shed, and the other one has to be carried away from the presence of God. It's a, it's a clear symbolic depiction. It didn't actually happen until Jesus Christ came. And here is the mystery solved. How could you be both just and the justifier. And the only way is by sending your son, by sending his son, Jesus Christ, to stand in the place of the sinner. First of all, to live the righteous life, and then to instead stand in the place of the guilty. So that as that guilt was being transferred to the shoulders of Jesus Christ, God was putting him to death and carrying those sins as far as the east is from the west carrying that guilt away. So the righteousness of God is being vindicated in that, yes, His promises can come true, that I will forgive your iniquity and sin, and at the same time, I absolutely will not clear the guilty. I will not be accused of being an unjust God. And He did it in such a way that it was demonstrated to the world and all the powers of the universe that God is righteous both in His justice and in His forgiveness of sinners. So, last question, by what means are you justified? By what means are you justified? And really, I suppose that's perhaps the most important question that we should ask. If this is all true, what is the means through which this justification can come to me? And Paul's answer is through faith. We see him pounding this again and again and again. 
It is to believe there is no other way to be righteous in the eyes of God. No other way to be welcomed into the loving arms of the Father than to come in full awareness that your sin deserved nothing short of death and that God paid that death by offering Christ on the cross. This, this faith is a result not of being smart enough to figure out such mystery and be rewarded by God for doing so, which I sometimes tend to think that we think that way, but instead it's a result of having the wonder lit in your heart for the glory and compassion of God as a loving Father. How do we have faith in Jesus Christ to believe that? Well, your faith, too, is a gift. It, too, is a gift. You have to understand that. It is not a work that God is rewarding you because you are smart enough to have faith. It's that God has opened your eyes to see what is clear and true before you, the wonders of God's grace, so that you have no other real choice to make than to believe that Jesus Christ is your Savior, that He is your righteousness, and that His death was your death. And I want you to think about all the implications of that, because if we really believe that's true, then we know we have absolutely unfettered access to God. We have nothing that stands between us and the Holy Father. To have, to believe that, and to believe that this God truly is a wonder and compassionate, means we desire to be in the presence of God. So I guess as you examine your faith this morning, you have to ask yourself, do I actually have an interest and a desire to be in the presence of the Father? Because if you don't, you may say you believe that Jesus died for your sins, but I don't think it's really sunk in. I don't think that faith is, is real because you're still not seeing God as, <laughs> as the great treasure that He is. There's a reason why in Matthew chapter 13, when Jesus is giving these, these parables of the kingdom that He talks about finding this great treasure in the field, and when you discover what a great treasure is, you're willing to go sell everything else you have, you have so you can buy that field and have that treasure. If we really get what Paul is saying in this paragraph about what God has done to pull you out of the pit, to propitiate His wrath, to bring you into favor with Himself then you'll see something about the compassionate, steadfast, pursuing, and persistent love of God for you. So, do you have faith in Jesus Christ as the one who died the death that you should have died and lived the life, lived the life that you should have lived? Do you believe that when God looks upon you, He looks upon you and He smiles with favor because He sees the righteousness of Christ? Do you believe that? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful for this paragraph that expounds what you have done in order to bring us back into favor, to redeem us from our lost state, from our hopeless state, from our despairing state not just by removing the guilt so that we are free of that, by also granting us your favor so that we might come into your presence and rejoice. 
Lord, would you strengthen our faith to do that this morning as we come to your table? In Jesus' name, amen.